Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim, Will Foxley, and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome back to another episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. I'm Christine Kim, a research analyst at Coindesk. As announced last week, our show will now be hosted by Coindesk Markets reporter Will Foxley and lead product owner at Consensus, Ben Edgington. Hi, Will and Ben. How are you guys doing today? Doing pretty good. How about yourself? I heard you had a very stressful morning, Will. Did, but I got some skiing in this weekend, which I know you are a big skier too, so... Um, oh. That was pretty relaxing. It's like March. Good. You get, still have snow where you are? Oh, uh, we can ski till... I've skied through July sometimes or into July. What? I didn't yeah. know that. That's so cool. Um, yeah, Vancouver snow. Oh, Colorado. So Vancouver snow only goes till like mid-March. Ben, I heard... How are you holding up? I mean, I've been hearing that the UK, in terms of lockdown for COVID-19, some of the world's most restrictive policies are in place over there. How are you holding up? Hey, Christine. Hey, Will. Uh, I don't know if we have the most restrictive policies, but it is pretty tight, pretty severe at the moment. Yeah, we can't do a lot, but it feels like uh, normal life now. It's been so long. There is light. The vaccine program is going incredibly well here. So as of today, we're vaccinated uh, nearly half of the adult population of the UK. It's been stunningly effective. And spring is here. So we've had a couple of lovely days weather. So looking forward to getting outside. Things are looking up. Definitely. We're also active. Will going out on skiing, Ben going outside to enjoy the good weather. I feel like we're a very active bunch. Sure hope so. We got a, a lot of nerd hours online, so you get outside a little bit. It's true. Our work is very much in front of the screens. But for now, we're just going to be talking and chatting and we're going to take an hour out of our days to talk about the latest ETH 2.0 news, starting with ETH 2.0's technical progress. Ben, could you start us off by giving us the technical breakdown on what's been on developers' minds about the network and its progress thus far? Yeah, things are good with the beacon chain. Uh, no news is good news. So let's talk about something else. Let's talk about withdrawal credentials. I'm sure that's your favorite topic. So there was- What a... even is that? <laughs> <laughs> Let me explain. <laughs> uh, we actually had a small spec update. It was sneaked out last week and it's the first update for four months and there's only a tiny change in it, but potentially it's going to have a big impact. So when you put down a stake on ETH2, you register your keys and you have to generate two keys. One is your validator key that's used all the time to sign transactions and blocks and you have a withdrawal key. And the idea is that in future, when withdrawals are enabled, you can use that key to get your stake back after you've stopped uh, validating. Now, for kind of historical reasons, that withdrawal key is currently an Ethereum to BLS key. So it's a different kind of cryptography from Ethereum 1. And that was part of the original design, but, but things have changed. And it looks like we're going to be able to withdraw directly onto the Ethereum, current Ethereum one chain into normal Ethereum one counts, uh, accounts that we all know and love. So why does this matter? This enables trustless staking pools. So under the current model with this BLS withdrawal key, 
uh, when stakes are withdrawn, nobody really knows where they're going yet. That mechanism hasn't been designed and it, it's difficult to put together anything trustless. Under the new model, when you register your validator, you can register an ETH1 address, which will be the destination for your funds, your stake when you take it out, your 32 plus plus Ether. And that withdrawal address can be a contract, a smart contract, which will divide that up between stakers according to uh, whatever rules are laid down now. So it can be done trustlessly. So this is a big deal and it will enable outfits like uh, Rocket Pool who have been blocked by this functionality and they'll be able to get up and running. That is so cool. But I'm a little bit confused because if the withdrawal functionality is to Ethereum and we're not exactly sure how Ethereum 1 and Ethereum 2.0 are going to merge, if we know that the stake that you earn on Ethereum 2.0 is withdrawn to Ethereum now, wouldn't that cause some kind of complications in the future when you guys start to merge the two chains? Isn't the reason why you kind of prevented any pathway for withdrawals in the first place, wasn't it to kind of de-risk the Ethereum 2.0 development roadmap until the phase 1.5 when things start to merge? Yeah, to be clear, withdrawals won't be possible at all until ETH1 chain and ETH2 have merged. So when we've got ETH1 on top of the beacon chain. So this is designing a mechanism for when, when that has already happened. We're not looking currently at having any kind of bridge between the two separate chains in this period. We're just trying to deliver that merge as soon as we can. And that's what's changed. What's changed is that this merge has come forward in the timetable. Previously, it was envisaged at being uh, quite distant after we'd done Shadi and after we'd done some kind of execution environment technology. But now we are bringing the merge forward in the timetable and just putting ETH1 on top of the beacon chain. And th this means we have a very clear and deliverable path to, to getting ETH1 on ETH2 and uh, enables us to make this simplification. I have a few questions to jump in there. So with the Berlin hard fork spec just being like finalized and that's coming in April, and then the London hard fork is expected in July. Uh, and that mostly has to do with some other features of Ethereum, like the Ice Age, which is like has to do with how Ethereum mining works. But I noticed there was some talk about the BLS spec going into that hard fork. Uh, does, is that kind of the reason for getting rid of this or, or pushing out this withdrawal credentials spec last week? Because it's so unknown if the BLS thing will change on ETH1. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's not really the, the okay. issue. It's still kind of independent at, at this stage. So when we came up with this mechanism a couple of years ago, it was envisaged that Ethereum 2 would be completely different from Ethereum 1, that we would have uh, a different account model secured by a different kind of key, this BLS key, and that Ethereum 1 accounts would be kind of legacy. We've taken a different route. We've taken a more kind of practical and pragmatic route and are just importing ETH1 as is into ETH2 which means that we can make the withdrawal uh, mechanism, we can base it around, around the ETH1 contracts. It doesn't need any extra functionality on ETH1. It will just work as is. That's the goal. Okay. Analogy-wise, this reminds me of when Ethereum 2.0 was likened to trying to replace the engine of a plane that was already in midair. But now it sounds like this path with, now that the withdrawal specs are out too, that instead of replacing the engine on a plane that's already running, you're taking the engine that's running and going to land it onto a bigger airplane that is also already running. 
like you're putting Ethereum <laughs> 1 into Ethereum 2.0, but entirely as is, and then letting the bigger airplane, the more upgraded airplane continue to go. It sounds very similar to that. Yeah, that's, that's nice. Uh, some people refer to this process as the docking rather than the merge, which kind of is a bit like your analogy, like a smaller spacecraft docking with a larger um, super spacecraft. So that's definitely what's uh, going on here. Also, props to you guys for getting this small spec update, like sneaking it out in, in the last couple of weeks or so, because I feel like with, with Ethereum right now, in order to get even the smallest changes upgraded on the Ethereum protocol, it's very difficult. You have to go through lots of consensus processes, have to get on a big developer's call. But right now with Ethereum 2.0 developers, because your, your group is small, you've got already a set number of, say, like four or five clients that you'd have to communicate with to get the update through. These are one of the benefits, I think, of having a smaller development community to be able to push through just small upgrades in a more timely manner, I'd say. Yeah, that's a nice observation. I think it's not so much about the size, it's about the kind of value secured. So uh, ETH2 has been in a bubble to an extent, and we haven't had to deal with governance, and we've more or less been able to do as we please because there hasn't been a huge amount of value secured by the chain. That's a bit different now. We have stakers who've uh, put down about uh, $5 billion worth of stake, and, and obviously we're, we're responsible for that. But it's nothing compared to the value of the ETH1 chain as a whole, and also the stakers know that we're, we're going to be making uh, rapid iterations. Now, when we do this merge, this docking, that, that all changes, of course, and, and we're looking at importing the vast value that's on the ETH1 chain and putting it on top of this beacon chain uh, that we've built. And we have to be, you know, orders of magnitude um, more careful about how we do that. So this was actually discussed for the first time at the Ethereum All Core Devs meeting, I think 10 days or so ago at the time of recording. Uh, and um, the first kind of step bringing ETH2 into the ETH1 governance world were, were taken. And it's going to be uh, softly, softly, gently, gently uh, for a while. A lot of people need convincing that this is going to go well. And were there any other technical updates that, that you wanted to discuss, Ben? Yeah, the main thing on devs' minds right now is the uh, first beacon chain upgrade. So we've planned the, the, the contents for that, and it's all about execution now. So we're targeting um, mid-year around June to just update some aspects of the beacon chain, relatively small changes. But really, it's a test of our ability as uh, ETH2 devs and client teams to coordinate an upgrade uh, to the running chain without messing anything up and is good practice for the future uh, upgrades, uh, such as uh, the docking or, or, or sharding. So we've just got lots of work getting clients uh, ready. So in the Teku team, we're supporting versioned data structures and uh, versioned processing logic and that kind of thing so that we can run the older protocol and the newer protocol together. And have you guys talked about what you'll name this inaugural <laughs> update that your guys' first hard fork? Yeah, this, this is the hardest thing about it is the naming. As with anything in computer science, it's the naming that, that always gets you. So there's been a lot of discussion around this and uh, various polls and votes going on. Uh, it looks like we're going to be adopting star names, and it's just a question of which star <laughs> now. Um, and there is a currently a POAP vote going on. So stakers, if you stake on, uh, if you're an early staker on the beacon chain, you will have a POAP, which is a proof of attendance protocol token. 
and that entitles you to vote on the name of the the beacon chain first upgrade not gonna lie i'm pretty disappointed Airbud was uh, one choice and that didn't get selected. So it's a, it's a huge blow to uh, some of our dog fans out there. Star names, do you have any insight into why? Because I'm looking at the list right now and World of Warcraft zones, I feel like that would probably win. Semantic versioning, I feel like that's a good one. Powers of G1 was a interesting Yeah, this is my one. favorite. This is, this is definitely <laughs> my favorite. These are so, this is like a great insight into the mind of Ethereum developers. Like, just this list alone, like their interests outside of Ethereum, like geological time scales for hard fork names. <laughs> Star names feels like a kind of safe but straightforward choice. I think it, it'll work. I'm not going to spend too many cycles uh, worrying about it. Uh, I was up all night thinking about it, to be honest, but <laughs> we will move on. I want to talk about the last ETH1X talk, the all core devs call, that a lot of ETH2 developers jumped on. And in particular, I want to talk about changing some factors and functions within the Ethereum virtual machine. So just for listeners, Vitalik Buterin came up with a few EVM features that he would like to be seen taken out. A lot of these features have been discussed in past or all core devs calls from other developers as well as popular ones to be taken out. The biggest one he was pointing to was the self-destruct feature or function, I guess I should say, which allows um, basically like it acts as a way to clean up the Ethereum state. So when everyone's dumping uh, data onto Ethereum to run a contract or launch a token or whatnot, that creates a lot of uh, data for Ethereum to hold. And in 2013, 2014, 2015, when the chain was being programmed, they're thinking, hey, why don't we just incentivize a way for people to take care of old contracts they don't want anymore and they can delete the data and we'll give them a partial reward uh, with some Ether. That has kind of backfired, at least Vitalik was talking that way. People are not cleaning up the state, and then these tokens are just being used for purposes outside of their original intention. And so now they're wanting to get rid of it, and Vitalik said there is a great opportunity to clean up the Ethereum state in the Ethereum virtual machine. So I want to toss this over to you, Ben, and see what you think about getting rid of some of these EVM functionalities. There's already been some pushback in dApp communities and even other chains saying, hey, look, Ethereum's code isn't law or whatever because uh, they're, they're changing the EVM and they weren't supposed to do that. So what is your take uh, as an ETH2 developer on this? Yeah, this self-destruct thing is hilarious. It's, it's one of those sort of laws of unintended consequences and tries to incentivize good behavior, but but leads to, to terrible bad behavior because uh, you end up incentivizing uh, the wrong thing. So people are actually filling the state with useless contracts at low gas prices so that they can then destruct those contracts at high gas prices and gain some premium on this. And so a huge proportion of the uh, Ethereum blockchain now is taken up with these junk contracts. So this is, this is interesting. I think we should fix what's broken. That mechanism is clearly broken. I think we should take the opportunity to fix it. I'm not an immutability maximalist uh, in this sense. It will possibly break some old smart contracts and the devs are very cautious about that. You know, looking through the state of Ethereum for things that'll break outside this gas coin thing. But it seems to be a sensible approach to dealing with something that, that's clearly broken. Also, when it comes to this idea of code of law, I feel like with Ethereum, so much is up in the air. So much is 
subject to change when it comes to Ethereum's monetary policy, block issuance, even the EVM itself. I remember there were more ambitious upgrades, upgrading to eWASM, switching out the consensus protocol entirely. There's a lot that Ethereum developers have told users will be subject to change in coming years and months. There's continued research and development for functionality on Ethereum to be really impacted. And I can understand the frustration of developers, though, of decentralized application developers trying to build on a platform that's constantly under flux. But that problem and that frustration seems to be something that users always needed to deal with since you know, Ethereum was first launched. As much as I sympathize with the kind of frustration, I also kind of recognize that Ethereum is unlike Bitcoin in that it is a highly experimental technology. I think the, uh, the core devs as well are super cautious about breaking anything. I mean, nobody wants to break things uh, arbitrarily or do anything which is gung-ho. So a lot of analysis is done and impact analysis. And, and often it's a trade-off between you know, doing something that, that might break a few things and repairing something that's kind of clearly broken for everybody. So difficult choices to make. And the, the devs, I think, do a very good and thorough and wise job of debating and, and executing the, these things. So gas cost repricings for various opcodes is an example of that, where it leads to denial of service vectors, it, it needs to be fixed. If that breaks uh, some contracts, well, that's a conversation that needs to be had. I think we are prepared to do that for the health and safety of the chain, rather than hold to a sort of uh, immutability position, which won't lead to good things in the end. Ethereum governance is very interesting compared to other chains. Bitcoin's governance is famously static, and I think that's a value prop for that chain. Uh, and then a lot of alternatives to Ethereum, such as like Polkadot or Near or whatnot, they have much more fluid governance systems, I'd say. And that's kind of the feature for them. And I feel like Ethereum is often leaning more towards the Bitcoin side currently, uh, though they famously do use hard forks versus soft forks like we see with Bitcoin. This is like definitely a touchstone for me, I think. And I think it's going to be interesting looking back on it when, if this EVM change does occur, uh, because it is like a breaking change for a, a few contracts. And one contract in particular uh, to look at uh, that this would kind of drudge up some bad history of is the parity wallet that uh, I think in 2017 or 2018 was locked and it had like 50 or $60 million worth of ETH in it. This self-destruct feature was a big reason that that wallet got locked. I mean, there's some other problems with the code around the wallet itself, um, but it was a huge bummer for parity tech because they lost a lot of their money. And then it was a, a blow to development for that chain. Um, of course, Parity at the time was developing the Parity Ethereum client, which is now with Open Ethereum. To me, like I wasn't around at that time, but looking back on some of the blog posts and talking with community members who were around during that time, I think that was pretty big moment between Parity Tech and the Ethereum community. So I want to ask you, Ben, as someone who's been around during that time, uh, just reflecting on that moment and how this opcode being yanked kind of plays into bringing back up those bad memories. I'd forgotten about that one. Uh, well, thanks for the reminder. Yes, you're right. I mean, this ability of contracts to destruct themselves it is in a way kind of makes the chain mutable in a way perhaps it shouldn't be. So fixing that would be good. And so Parity had this important part of the contract uh, disappeared by a third party and made all of the wallets unusable after that. Uh, and in that instance, you know, there was a lot of lobbying um, to, 
to roll back that or to restore Parity's funds. And as a community, that wasn't the path that was chosen uh, at that time. So, you know, a lot of debate, but uh, under those circumstances, we didn't change what had been done uh, in the past. There is a, a strong reluctance not to revise history in Ethereum. Uh, people point to the DAO uh, hack, and I think that's probably the first and the last time that anything like that will ever happen, even though technically no history was rewritten, despite what uh, the trolls will tell you. And since then, we might make changes that uh, change the network for future users, but I don't see us reverting anything in future at all. Yeah, I definitely don't see uh, any reversion happening because that would be way, that'd be a huge thing for Ethereum to undergo. And a lot of people would have opinions on that topic. It's interesting bringing back these old memories because they necessarily happen when you make changes to a chain for the betterment of the chain. Like looking at this opcode itself, the arguments Vitalik and others have posted seem like it's worth undergoing. Um, so that was kind of the largest change that I wanted to talk about from that core devs call. I think a few other things that were brought up on the call was mostly just the Berlin hard fork. And there's some lower level updates to gas repricings, a few other EVM changes, I think just to make the EVM just talk a little bit better to itself. So pre-compiles. The most important thing I think that was decided on that call, well, it wasn't decided quite yet, but EIP 1559 was presented and it will be most likely accepted for the London hard fork at this upcoming all core devs on March 14th, I think, is or March 7th, I think. And that EIP is going to change Ethereum a ton. So Ben, I don't know if we've talked about it on this podcast yet, but have you dug into EIP 1559 and what do you think about it? And Christine, I'd love to get your analyst opinion on it as well. Yeah, I'm not super noisy on 1559. Uh, got other things on the mind, but uh, I definitely like it. I think it's it's great for the future health of Ethereum as a network and good for uh, user experience as well. One of my close colleagues is Tim Baker, who's been very involved in this effort to to get 1559 well scrutinized and eventually included. So I keep up to date with the latest on that, uh, although haven't spoken much publicly about it. We were asked as Teku team whether we supported it or not, IELSA team. They interestingly chose to remain neutral or TBD for now until the core devs have, have decided one way or the other. So if it is decided for London, we as Teku team will, will support that and will signal that. We have a number of um, Ethereum 1 core devs in the Teku team. And I think they're a bit sensitive about putting too much pressure on the uh, Ethereum devs, you know, too much political pressure. It's not easy being a core dev. It's very true. The kind of pressure core devs face when it comes to these kind of decisions are quite large. On the topic of EIP 1559, I think that one of my main concerns with it was that the monetary, basically like the total issuance of Ether would be in flux always in that depending on how many people are using the network, impacting how much fees are being burned, how much the ETH supply is going out of circulation, that will impact, you know, does the ETH supply grow over time or does it shrink over time or does it stay constant over time? That kind of uncertainty when it comes to monetary policy, I think it can have big impacts on ETH value over the long term. I think the other part that was really interesting and that I'd like to continue to follow up on is how EIP-1559 will translate in an Ethereum 2.0 environment. So when 
Ethereum 1 does dock into the Beacon Chain environment, into proof of stake. Uh, presumably EIP-1559 will just continue on as normal. How does that play into the dynamics of validator rewards and issuance in this new proof of stake environment? With any major upgrade to Ethereum, now with Ethereum 2.0 having been launched, those are always considerations that are really interesting to think about and always really interesting for me to continue to follow up on and ask uh, developers about because... I think the reality of Ethereum 2.0 materializing, it's a lot more imminent. It feels a lot more imminent now than it used to. Yeah. And I think there's a push to get this, this merge, this docking uh, done sooner rather than later because of the, uh, the fuss that the Ethereum miners have made about 1559, which many believe is completely unwarranted, has, I think, forced thinking through getting Ethereum onto proof of stake sooner rather than later. So that's uh, focused the minds to an extent. Uh, 1559 is already built into uh, ETH2. So if you want to put data on shards, when we implement sharding, that already has a 1559-like mechanism uh, for it. So some fees are burned and it has this block size dependence on the fees. Yeah, we fully expect that to be an operation too for the uh, ETH1 chain. So your block proposers are the miners and they will receive some of the transaction fees and part will be burnt. Yeah, speaking of this this merge of ETH1 going into ETH2 and more a little bit about Ethereum value proposition, I did want to take the last couple of minutes of this podcast to kind of talk about the value of Ether and what Ether is doing in the markets. Because ever since, you know, Ethereum 2.0 launched, I get this sense that the full reality of what Ethereum 2.0 brings and what Ethereum 2.0 can do is not being priced into ETH. The latest, you know, bullish price action that we've seen in the markets for Ether has closely followed what's been happening with Bitcoin. So, you know, just tracking things like when Bitcoin price goes up, you see ETH price also kind of rally along with it. When Bitcoin price goes down, you see ETH falling to a much higher extent, you know, dropping a lot more. So, One of the things that I wanted to get both Ben, you and Will, your thoughts on is, do you think that Ethereum 2.0 is being factored into ETH price now? If not, if you're kind of thinking along the lines that I am, when do you think or what kind of events do you foresee triggering uh, the big market realization that Ethereum 2.0 is this technology that will make Ethereum adoptable for the masses? Because right now I I just get the sense that it's more seen as something still in the distant future, even though tech-wise and even though community-wise, you know, we're already, we're already starting to factor it into governance decisions. And, you know, we're already, we have a podcast on this and newsletters, et cetera, but I don't think quite think the markets have caught up yet. But I mean, you guys might disagree. So I want to hear your thoughts on the latest ETH price bull run and my opinion, it does kind of seem very much led by, by Bitcoin and, and bullishness on Bitcoin. But at some point or another, I do expect Ethereum 2.0 to, to have some kind of an impact. My general perspective on all of crypto right now is that it's all about unit bias. And then combined with the fastest horses that one people bet on. So Bitcoin goes up because it's number one and everyone knows its name for years. And I think Ethereum is kind of getting to that place as well, where it's just been around for years and its price has held 
pretty solidly over the last year. It's been like a you know 12 month bull market, I think. I don't think most people think about ETH2, to be honest. And I think that's okay. And I think that might even be something that core devs should want because it is a bleeding edge research project. And software at its core should be something that's used and not known about, in my opinion. I should be able to use Google Chrome and it should just function perfectly. And the only thing I know about it is its logo and its name. That's how I view software, just as like as a consumer of it. I know for developers, I might think, oh, this is like my pet project or my baby. And they have much more sincere feelings about it, uh, which is good. That's why they produce the best product. But I don't, I really don't know how much the ordinary consumer is pricing in ETH2. Ethereum is working right now. I think there's over $15 billion settled on it daily. Uh, and those metrics, you can play around with them a little bit and they go up and down, but it's working right now. And as long as the long-term project works out, I expect Ether, the asset to increase in price because access to an immutable blockchain that has smart contract capabilities is necessarily impressive and has a price premium to use. So that's my way of saying, I don't know, but I'll toss it over to Ben. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a reason I stick to the tech and uh, and don't trade a lot, and it's all very mysterious. I think I would agree really with with Will that the tech in many respects is is not priced in uh, at all to the coins, the crypto market in, in general. And this kind of disappoints me as a as a technical person. But you know, evidence for this, if you look at the last two years of BTC ETH price by crypto standards, it's basically flat. I mean, they haven't differentiated at all. In to my mind, you know, ETH has accrued a huge amount more value as a protocol than Bitcoin. And if you just look at the top 10 on CoinGecko or CoinMarketCap, you know, just look at what's in there. You can see that people aren't being discerning at all about the underlying technology. It's, um, it's all just number go up, number go down uh, game. I find this very disappointing, but you know, quality will out and utility in particular value creation will out over the next uh, few years. And over time, these protocols will differentiate. The ones that deliver most value will, will do best. It's true. That's, that's a good point. Because over time, I do think that Ether and Bitcoin will differentiate themselves much more in terms of market value. Just over the last year, correlation with Bitcoin and Ethereum, the last I checked, had dropped from a high of something around like 0.9 to 0.6. So we are seeing inklings of this it's still high correlation i mean 0.6 is still high but we are seeing inklings of this differentiation beginning to emerge and i'm sure with something like ethereum 2.0 this kind of tech though it takes longer to develop and longer to be priced in longer for people to kind of come to understand that trajectory does have longer and bigger impacts so it's interesting it's interesting well thank you guys thank you so much for the thoughts ben and will unfortunately we have to cut off our time there or unless we're gonna you know turn this into a two three hour podcast <laughs> there's always a lot to talk about thank you to everybody who was tuning in today to mapping out eth 2.0 all three of us will be back again oh no no not all three of us uh ben and i will be back thursday with more insights on ethereum 2.0 and its development will is gonna take a much well-deserved break so please be sure to subscribe to Coindesk Podcasts for notifications and alerts when the new next episode airs. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our newsletters. I write an update every other week on Ethereum 2 development, and you can find that at eth2.news or follow me on Twitter and I'll let you know when the next one is out. 
And you can also subscribe to Christine and I's weekly newsletter, Valid Points, by going to coindesk.com. There you can keep up to date with us about Coindesk's staking journey and ETH2 network in general. If you have any questions you'd like answered on this podcast, you can connect with each one of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. Give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week for Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye. See ya. Bye. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine Kim, Will Foxley, and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Abloom and Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.